Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken, showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love or find your next favorite wordsmith. This is episode 39. Um, I always, I knew I always wanted to write about women who cross-dress, then I wrote about women inventors. I don't know, just women that did stuff outside the box. This is author Lorena Hughes, talking about how she likes to create strong women in fiction. You're going to meet one of her characters today, a woman named Puri, at the heart of Lorena's new novel, The Spanish Daughter. Puri travels to Ecuador to claim an inheritance, her part of a cacao plantation. There's so much more to the story, but we'll start our conversation right there. You say early in the book about Cristobal not valuing things. Yeah. He's not a man of things. And I think that Puri, um, you know, articulates that also. Like at one point she says the beautiful objects held no meaning for her in this mansion. And so this idea about true happiness lying in the things that we don't own mm-hmm. echoes throughout this story that is very influenced by wealth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely a theme I wanted to explore because I think that happens all the time around us. I mean, we always think happiness is in the in the objects we possess, and then when we get those objects, we're not happy anymore. We want something else, and so I think true happiness lies in the affections, you know, and and, and the people and the relationships, the moments. You know, that's kind of what I was going for a little bit. How everybody fights over this fortune, and then. You know, they realize maybe that's not what is going to bring me happiness. Um, Happens a lot in in writing, you know, and and, um, storytelling. Another character might say the theme of the book very early on and the heroine be like, no, 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 rejecting that, the concept, but Mm -hmm. later on learning it, you know, at the end of the... Yes, I think you did that beautifully. So... One of the other things in the book that I think is interesting is there's a bird named Ramona mm-hmm. who is a talking bird <laughs> and kind of, and she's in a lot of scenes. So what did you, have you had a talking bird or have you known a talking bird? <laughs> no, there was a girl in my high school, I think who had a cockatoo and talked about her a lot, but I actually saw tons of videos of YouTube cockatoos and they talk and it's hilarious and so there was in one of my revisions I was like something more needs to happen with Ramona like I knew at first I knew I wanted her to give some kind of a tip or like some kind of a clue yes and the first few drafts I couldn't figure out what it was that she was what clue was she going to give I need to come up with something she needs to give a clue you know this is kind of interesting but in some of the videos I saw a cockatoo that was eating cacao beans you know and they would ask for them and they would give and then um I'm actually a big fan of this cockatoo called pebbles and they have videos of her in YouTube and she's kind of funny and she says a lot of bad words but (laughs) I I didn't 
they have a personality. They're a little bit divas. Those yeah, guys. it was an element of humor. There was an element of humor when she was um, in the scene. It was realistically written. So it doesn't surprise me that you actually watched videos of these birds and their vocabulary and their habits yeah. before you wrote that because it felt very authentic. I thought you must have a bird that talks. <laughs> No, but I watched tons of hours and hours of verse talking. <laughs> I was like, does anybody really talk? I want to see how. So there's also for me a lot in the story that has to do with religion. The mother of the siblings that she goes to meet has a religious fervor about her. One of the sisters tells a story about a vision and the brother becomes a priest. And then you end up sort of having these conversations among characters that are really sort of moral theory conversations, right? Why did you decide to include that? Or where did, how did that sort of germ of an idea where you, t- you have these morality conversations and these, you know, these connections to Catholicism, where does that come from for you? Well, I think that kind of has to do with me a little bit because my family's all Catholic all around me from my mom's side, my dad's side, and uh, my husband's, <laughs> but I'm not, you know, I've, my dad kind of stepped away from the church and then mm. make us religious. And so I always have questions. So maybe that's why that conversation came to be, because those are thoughts that I often have. That religion is very important in Latin America, especially at the time of my book. And I have a lot of, like in my mom's side, my grandfather really wanted all his boys to be priests and like one by one he had five boys and five girls but so one by one they he put them in the seminary and then they all quit they all quit <laughs> but there's that it was very strong in the early 20th century in Ecuador and Latin America to have they everybody wanted to have a son or a daughter that was religious you know it was yeah. I even had a my mom had an uncle who was a very high up in the church in Ecuador mm-hmm. and so I think that was something that if you write historical fiction is such an integral part of who people were back then. Like nowadays you can write a contemporary, you don't have to mention the religion of the character maybe, or if they have it, they may not have it. But I think that in historical, it's, it needs to be there because it was such an important part of people's yeah. lives. And so like through Puri, Puri is a little bit skeptical of things like, Sometimes the, the writer comes through a little bit in character. And so, yes. <laughs> well, as you've said, she is outside of the box, you know? And so it's not really surprising to the reader that her, her thought process around these moral questions and how they relate to the practices of the church could maybe not conflict, but could cause more questions. And I like the way that it happens in a bar. There's just a really, I mean, I was circling. I was like, oh, this is really good. You know, questions about is goodness innate or is goodness learned? And I think a lot of the characters in this book, you're, you're not really sure if they're good or not. As you're reading, that's part of what Puri is trying to discover as she's hiding her identity and trying to figure out what happened to her husband and who wanted to do her harm She's constantly questioning people's goodness around her. Yeah. And, and, and I really like in fiction when characters are not black and white, when they're gray, because that's how we are. That's how we all are. Yes. And so that I never like to have a villain that is all bad, you know? 
Yeah. I, I think people have goodness in them and, and badness, you know, and, and it's kind of what they talk in that conversation. Anybody's capable of good and bad. And so yeah. it's a decision that we make every day. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good place to pause and let you hear some of the first chapter. You are immediately with Puri as she arrives in Ecuador, and you realize something terrible happened on the journey, something that forces her to be resourceful and daring. This is from The Spanish Daughter by Lorena Hughes, narrated by the award-winning Frankie Corzo, whose work has earned her Audiophile Magazine's Best of Audiobook Awards in 2019 and 2020. Guayaquil, Ecuador, April 1920. Surely they could all see through my disguise. A drop of sweat slid down my forehead. I was definitely not dressed for the weather which was akin to one of those Turkish baths gentlemen visited. The corset squeezing my small breasts was not helping matters. Neither was my husband's vest, his jacket, or his bow tie. The fake beard made my face itch. If only I could scratch it. But any wrong move might tear it off. Even worse, my spectacles were fogging up and making everything blurry. How did I ever think I could pull this off? A tremor rippled over my entire body as I reached the end of the pier. Calm down. You can do this. I took a deep breath, but my lungs didn't seem to get enough air. I did, however, get a mouthful of the stench of fish and smoke coming from the ship. This was madness. Herds of people waited for us to descend the plank. Some carried signs. Others waved at my fellow passengers from the distance. I pictured one of them pointing at me in ridicule. I can still go back inside. I turned around and smacked into a shoulder behind me. With all the shouting, shuffling of feet, and dropping of bags, I hadn't seen the young man jostling in my direction. I shifted to the side and he rushed past me, ramming into an old lady strolling in front of us. She squealed as she fell on the ground. Bruto, she called after him. I darted toward her and helped her up, her bony arms as fragile as toothpicks. Are you all right? I said in a low voice. Yes, I think so. She snatched her hat from the ground. That man is an animal. But thank you, caballero. At least there are still a few gentlemen around. I smiled at the irony, but more importantly, it gave me a small measure of confidence that my disguise was working. I was about to ask her if she needed to see a doctor when a woman, older than Methuselah, approached us, leaning over a bamboo cane for support. I'd never seen so many wrinkles and spots on a single face. Hija, she told the lady I'd just helped. Mama, the old lady said, hugging her mother. The women had a lot to say to each other, and left without giving me a second glance. If only my mother could be here to help me with my ordeal. But she'd passed away three years ago. And now, Gritoban. My throat tightened. 
that I couldn't fall apart at this moment. I was already here. I had to follow through with my plan, no matter what. A Moorish tower in yellow and white stripes rose behind a cluster of hats and palm trees. Although narrower, it reminded me of Torre del Oro back in Sevilla, a slice of my old life appearing before my eyes to reassure me everything would be fine. That was what my mind said. My legs told a different story. They had become as heavy as lead. At any given moment, someone, anyone, could attack me. But I had no way of knowing who, or if I would be able to even move. Get a hold of yourself, Buri. Relax. I scanned the strange faces around me. Certainly my father's lawyer would be among these people, though I had no idea what he looked like. I hoisted my husband's typewriter and dragged the trunk with my other hand. Fortunately, I had given away all my gowns, which meant I only had to worry about one trunk as opposed to three. As I wandered about the harbor, I ran into several of my dresses on the bodies of other passengers. The last one of them, a pink taffeta sheath my mother had sewn for me, dissolved like foam among a sea of linen and sheer drapes. A flock of seagulls caught over my head, I walked past a row of canoes moored along the dock, and a group of women carrying umbrellas to shield their faces from the unforgiving sun. Behind them was a man in a dark suit that stood out among the white jackets and hats, like a black bean in a bowl of rice. He was holding a sign with my name, the words written in curly black letters, Maria Purificación de la Fonte y Toledo. La Fonte, from my French father, Toledo from my Spanish mother. I stopped in front of him. May I help you, senor, he said. Senor, another small mercy. He was shorter than me, but I'd always been tall for a woman. His wide skull was reminiscent of those early humans in Cristobal's archaeology books. His eyebrows were coarse and primitive, nearly joining each other. I coughed in order to make my voice hoarser. I'm Cristobal de Balboa, Maria Purificación's husband. If I spoke slowly, I could reach the lower register of my voice. Tomás Aquilino, at your service. I was right. This was the lawyer who'd sent the letter informing me of my father's death. He glanced behind me. Where's your wife? I thought she intended to come herself. A sharp pain hit my chest and it had nothing to do with my corset. This ache came every time I thought of what had happened to Cristobal. I studied every line on Aquilino's forehead, the glint in his eyes, the corners of his dry lips. Could I trust him? I took a deep breath. Unfortunately, my wife perished aboard the Andes. Aquilino looked appropriately shocked. Dios mío, santísimo, how? I hesitated. A case of Spanish influenza. And they didn't quarantine the ship? No. I let go of the trunk. Only a few passengers contracted it, so it wasn't necessary. He stared at me in silence. Did he know I was lying? I'd never been a deceitful person, and I despised having to do this. 
What a disgrace, he finally said. We didn't hear anything about it here. My sincere condolences, senor. I nodded. Help me with my trunk, will you? I said. Not as a favor, but as a command. Men didn't ask. Men ordered. Aquilino grabbed the other end of the trunk, and together we carried it across the street. It was heavier than a dying bull, but I couldn't let the lawyer see how weak I was. By the time we reached the vehicle, I was panting, and a layer of sweat covered my face and armpits. No wonder men sweat all the time. He plunked down his end of the trunk next to a glossy black Ford Model T. I hadn't known many people in my hometown who owned a car, much less an imported one. I wouldn't have imagined there would be such modern vehicles in a place that Cristobal had called a land of barbarians. This Aquilino must make good money as a lawyer. Or maybe he was one of those men who found other means to build a personal fortune. Favors here and there, perhaps even a hand, a sort of tax, if you will, on another person's inheritance. Or maybe he himself came for money. I'd only traveled in an automobile a couple of times. In my native Sevilla, I walked everywhere. But when I visited Madrid to see about the expired patent on my grandmother's invention, her fabulous cacao bean roaster, I rode an automobile similar to this one, except that these seats seemed softer. Or perhaps it was my exhaustion. Pushing on a lever by the steering wheel, Aquilino informed me that, unless I'd made other arrangements, I would spend the night at his house. We would depart to Vinces first thing in the morning to see about Don Armand's will. He was unable to look me in the eye as he said this. I recalled the words from the letter. I'd read it so many times I'd already memorized it. As one of the beneficiaries, you are required to come to Ecuador and take possession of your portion of your father's estate, or to appoint a representative who may sell or donate the property on your behalf. One of the beneficiaries. I'd been giving this some thought. I'd never heard of my father having other children, but one could never be too sure with men. It wouldn't surprise me if he'd started a new family here. After all, he'd left my mother 25 years ago to pursue his dream of owning a cacao plantation in Ecuador. It was inevitable that he should have found someone else to share his bed. The incident aboard the ship left no doubt that someone wasn't pleased with my coming. The question was who? I wanted it already the first chapter to at least have that question for the reader. Oh, okay, and, and the action already moving. Because I, yeah. thought, I think it's important to grab the reader's attention from the beginning and that was a way to do it because she was already in costume. So you're already like, okay, she's gonna get caught. You have that question in your mind. Yes. You're going through the first chapter. There's a, and I'm not sure when it happens in the book, but Don is just, the father is describing his Spanish wife as a matchstick quickly incensed. That is a spot on, easy to imagine, concise in its words description of someone. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that. And then you also have someone who's, you describe their nose. Do you know what I'm talking about? As had the texture of a ginger root. Oh yeah. I don't know. I just pictured it. 
some things just I don't know just some people just are, are just in my mind and that's the best way that I can <laughs> yes it just made me think you must be in your own life an observer of people mm-hmm. well what I was uh, for most of my life I was a visual artist and I oh. paint so I like I I think in those terms like you know when I'm painting and just parts of a person you know um how the lines fall and I don't know it's just yeah, it's very visual to me yes and, mm-hmm. so you figured out a way to to bring that to a reader through words that's an interesting connection between visual arts and the art of storytelling did you find that to be a hard transition or do you feel like both of those parts of you feed each other well it was hard in the sense that English is not my first language so it was hard sometimes to find the right word in English to wow yeah to represent what I'm trying to say I wrote a novel before this one that where the main character is an artist and the way Mm. she describes people is how she would paint them and she constantly is describing characters that way and so I think that facilitated for this book that those kinds of descriptions they started coming Mm. naturally to me after I wrote that other novel so I guess it really hadn't connected to me that English is not your first language (laughs) because your writing is so artful so descriptive such a command of the English language it's that's definitely a compliment to give you as an author. Thank you. It was really good. My husband, before I met him, lived in Panama. And uh-huh. he does have English as his first language, but he learned, he became fluent in Spanish in the years that he lived in Panama. And when we first got married, he would say something in Spanish. And I would say, well, so what does that mean? And he said, well, there's not actually a good way to say it in English. Yes, I struggle with this, especially with sayings. I grew up, my mom is always having, oh, like the saying says, and I wanted so bad to translate those. And sometimes I just can't, like, it doesn't make any sense in English. Yeah. As someone who is limited to one language, that's just alluring to me that you have in your vocabulary, in your frame of reference in your mind, a whole nother set of ways to explain and describe and interact with things. So the name of this podcast is Desideratum, which Mm -hmm. is a Latin root for um, essential things. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was growing up, there was a poem called Desiderata that was all these different sort of life lessons. So Uh I like to ask the authors, and we've kind of talked about it really because you've expressed some great essential ideas in your writing uh-huh. But for you, if you had to explain to someone or when you talk to your children about what's essential in life, what, how would you answer that? What do you think is most essential? I would answer family, you know, family and, and, and friends too, you know, because friends bring out an, a different aspect of your life that family doesn't. But I would say relationships with people. I mean, right. that's, that's right. the essence uh, because what else do we have? Like we could have be living in a mansion by ourselves, you know, and mm. beautiful things around us. But like the family is what makes you feel good, you know, or yeah. relationships with other people. I yeah. think that's essential. 
you know the the, the, the book the five love languages so for yes me, it would be quality time you know it would right be, to me that's the essential you know spend time together a good conversation yeah so you mentioned you have this enormous web of extended family do you live and interact in a way that you have those people in your life well, I, not so much because I, I live in the United States and they're all in Ecuador. When I go to Ecuador, I visit my family, you know, yeah. I go to year, I go in the summers. My grandma on my, on my dad's side, um, had 15 kids, lost some in, when they were little, um, and then she had 10 for a long time, but she always mentioned that she had 18 pregnancies because she also had a few miscarriages. So wow. She lived a very long life. She lived up to 96 years of age. So she did a lot of mothering, right? Like that's a long time to be mothering. Yeah. And when you only have, like, I have three children. I just, I can't imagine. I can't, it's hard for me to imagine that many pieces of my heart walking around out in the world. No, I know. I know exactly what you mean. I don't know how she did it. She was admirable. She was a very admirable woman. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Lorena honoring and admiring strong women. Thanks to Vita at Kensington Books for introducing me to Lorena and sharing the advanced copy of The Spanish Daughter. For Desideratum listeners, Kensington generously provides the discount code DP20 to use at checkout to save 20% across their incredible library, including pre-ordering Lorena Hughes' The Spanish Daughter. That's DP20 at kensingtonbooks.com. Also, please look for The Spanish Daughter on Libro FM. The audiobook produced by Recorded Books Audio should be available to listen to December 28th. I'll put the Desideratum podcast affiliate link with Libro FM in the show notes and on the link tree on all our social media accounts. Using the affiliate link supports the podcast and a local bookstore of your choice at Libro.fm. This has been Episode 39. As always, thank you for listening.